so you can find deals or you can create them out of thin air. So when you man manufacture a deal out of an idea, out of a concept, there's no one competing for that deal in your head. So you're alone in the marketplace. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, I'm excited to have Victor Manash. Victor, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Great to be here. Yeah, well, definitely appreciate you coming on the show and excited to talk to you about uh, your business and what you've got going on. So Victor is the principal at South Lake Development. He's specializing in new construction, multifamily apartments, senior housing, and hospitality. He has development projects underway in five different markets across North America. He's also the host of the Daily Real Estate Espresso podcast with over 700 episodes to date. He's the author of the book, Magnetic Capital, How to Raise All the Money You Need for Any Worthy Venture. He's a frequent guest on radio and TV speaking on investment, economics, and entrepreneurship. And uh, with that being said, Victor, can you give our listeners a little bit more about uh, kind of your background and, and what you're obviously focused on today? Sure. Well, my path into the world of real estate investing was not the typical career path. I started my career as a microprocessor designer in the tech industry, and I have uh, chips that are in all kinds of different applications all over the world. If you've traveled on an Airbus aircraft, the seatback display uh, is made by a French company called Talus, and that's my microprocessor in it. I'm in Cisco Wi-Fi access points, uh, Panasonic printers, Canon printers, Pachinko patchy slot machines in Japan with uh, Sammy Sega and NVIDIA as a partner. Uh, all kinds of different applications, brocade fiber channel switches. I mean, the list goes on and on. That's my background. Not the typical training for no. real estate investing. And about 2009, I was traveling back and forth to Tokyo. Uh, every two weeks, we were building a new cellular network for a carrier in Japan. And actually kind of topical right now as we're talking about coronavirus, I actually did catch the H1N1 swine flu virus in Japan back in 2009. Uh, so I've been watching the news very intently, having gone through that experience. Yeah. And um, at about that point in time, just realized that it was, you know, burning me out. It was, um, you know, it's a going back that 13 hour flight to Tokyo every couple of weeks is punishing on the body. It was burning me out physically, emotionally, and it just decided it was time to do something different. And, you know, at that point, we had a, a tremendous meltdown happening in the world of lending, which cascaded into the real estate market. And I saw that as probably the opportunity of a lifetime to make a left-hand turn in my career. So that's, that's how I got into this business. What was your first uh, real estate deal then? Funny, I started in, I live in Ottawa, Canada, uh, our nation's capital, and yeah. we have a short term market or medium term market, a lot of parliamentary staff, embassy staff, military officers who come through the core of the city and the government doesn't spend money in 12 month increments. They spend money in three to six month increments. Yep. So the 12 month unfurnished lease is of no use to those folks. Uh, this was before the days when Airbnb was a household name. And so I developed a product that was a, essentially an executive suite furnished rental within walking distance of parliament where the price point was exactly the monthly housing allowance. So you know what the answer is, what product can you deliver for that price point that would be useful for that market? And I was always full. Mm -hmm. That's how I started. And it was a good business. It wasn't a great business, but it was a good business. And when you say developed, did you, did you actually build those? Or no, I started purchasing. Existing? Yeah. I just started purchasing existing condos literally within walking distance of parliament. Uh, mostly one bedrooms, uh, just finish them to a high standard and deliver them as a turnkey executive rental. Got it. That, that's, where, that's where I started because I saw a business opportunity. I'm not really a real estate guy. I just saw it as a business need and said, okay, how can I fulfill that need? Uh, so that, that's how I started. And like I said, it was a good business, just not a great business. And then, of course, 
we I saw what was happening south of the border and saw where you could purchase properties at times for 30% of construction costs, 25% of construction costs. And, you know, you do the math on it and said, I have way more upside than downside. Yeah. Uh, which was true, which was true. And in fact, as I look back on it in retrospect, I wish I could go through that whole process again because I didn't really capitalize on it to the extent that I could have or should have. Yeah. And I think most people that were investing during that time, I know myself included kind of can say the same thing as wow, we, I didn't really realize the extent of the opportunity that was available at that time. Really wish that I I could go back and redo that whole process again and, and figure out how to, capitalize it on it uh even better what so was so when you kind of transitioned uh what markets were you in and and where, was that the new build phase or was that still purchasing existing it sounded like maybe purchasing existing yeah at that point when you could own when you could buy things for a third of construction cost it made no sense it to build sense. Yeah, yeah. it didn't make any sense so it was buying existing uh did some work in uh, in arizona or apartments or uh, mostly multi Mostly okay. multifamily, uh, a little bit of singles, did some flips, uh, discovered that, you know, it looked good on paper, it looked good in an Excel spreadsheet, yeah. but in the cold, hard light of reality, uh, once you go through all of that effort, the return on time wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. And sure. uh, yeah, so uh, it was primarily multi and uh, did some work in phoenix some in florida uh, chicago uh, built a reasonable portfolio with a partner in chicago well, two was a very powerful lesson i've lost money in c class properties and i've never ever lost money in a class and b class mm. what i found was that in in c class properties again the, pre- the math looks great on a spreadsheet but unless it goes according to plan, unless you've got sufficient reserves for maintenance, unless you've got sufficient reserves for economic vacancy uh, and, and all of those things that are ultimately going to hit you in, in that marketplace, uh, it's a recipe for losing money. It's very, very labor intensive to stay on top of those properties, uh, which means that you're spending way too much expense on manpower, in rent collections, in cleaning up trash, and all of that kind of stuff. And yes, we were able to produce very high-quality assets that appreciated very modestly in those neighborhoods. You know, if we had been in the north side of Chicago, uh, we would have been making money in our sleep. Uh, On the south side of Chicago, it required hard work each and every day. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't really understand is that, as you said, the B and the A class, a lot less work, uh, a lot more stable. Maybe the numbers don't look quite as good on paper, but when reality hits, and that's the key, is when reality hits, when it's no longer a piece of paper that we're looking at, uh, then we find out there might be some differences there. And C class just requires more maintenance, requires more reserves. not only is it the building, but it's also oftentimes the occupants that create some of those extra um, expenses that you weren't seeing on the piece of paper. So now that cap rates have really kind of compressed everything into one almost lump sum, C-class can be challenging. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I like to say that your water heater doesn't care how much rent you're collecting when no. it decides to die. No. Yeah, the air conditioner exactly. doesn't care how much you're collecting. And if you're only getting five, 600 a month, how many months of rent do you need to repurchase that new air conditioner? Yeah. If I'm getting 1800, 2400 a month in rent, I can buy back that air conditioner pretty quick. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I try to tell people too, is look at what's, let's say rents increase by a, a very handsome amount, 5% a year. What's five percent right. of five hundred dollars versus five percent of fifteen hundred dollars? Exactly. We can all figure out that pretty quickly and understand that we're increasing our rents greater on these uh, higher, higher price buildings. What means so, you go from? Uh, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was going to say, so, so you know, re- really spent a fair bit of time in the Chicago market. And about the same time, I'm going to say 2011, 2012, uh, met a couple of partners in the Philadelphia market, and we started doing some major rehabs. In fact, where we started was with multifamily, again, a smaller multifamily. We purchased 15 properties in one day at a housing authority auction uh, for $350,000. And it was an eclectic mix of properties that we wanted and ones we didn't. And in the end, that turned out to be a really smart move. Uh, We ended up redeveloping these properties. And then over time, we ended up acquiring probably 75, 80 properties within about a 10-block radius. And by 2013, 2014, the market had pretty much bottomed out. We'd had almost five years with almost no new product in the market, a lot of pent-up demand for new product. And we were still able to build pretty inexpensively. Uh, At that point, we had been doing major, what I call major rehabs, which really just means preserving the exterior structure of the building, demolishing the inside completely, and putting a new building on the inside. So the step from there to new construction was a very small step. And so we started new construction in about 20. 2013, uh, we were still at that time building at about $88 a square foot for a B-class product. Wish we could still do that today. And uh, we were able to produce some very good quality product in some of our best projects. We started at that particular point in time because we bought the land at a very good price. uh, And we land banked. Literally over a five-year period, we land banked a significant amount of property and we assembled a significant amount of property. And one of the things that we discovered about land a couple of characteristics first is land goes from being in high demand to not in demand at all you it's it's a binary either people want it or they don't it's not like prices for land drop 10 percent. if real estate prices drop 10 percent, prices for land drop 90 percent. i mean it goes from being in demand to not in demand just like that in a, in a heartbeat So we were able to buy land very, very inexpensively. That same land today, if you were to buy that same land, you're probably talking nine, ten times the price. It's gone up that much in the same area, which is astounding. So uh, you make money in land in a few ways. Number one, buying right. Number two, if you have a large piece of virgin land and you want to carve it up, you can make up you can make money in land by, by carving it up. Yeah. Or if you're in a dense urban situation, you can make money with land by putting it back together, reassembling it. Yeah. So you get a large enough parcel that you can do something with. And it's really just not that complicated. It's not always easy, but it's not complicated. So when you said, Hey, we're going to, let's start developing properties. Yeah. Um, you obviously saw some opportunity there. What did you see? What did what did you just not like the buying the existing properties and thought developing just seems so much better? Or like what were you seeing that made development make sense? The opportunity that we saw, uh, we coined a phrase which we call "buy on the line, move the line," and that line that we're talking about is the line that exists in every city in America. I mean, there's multiple of these lines in in many cities. On one side of the line, you've got that hot gentrified neighborhood. And you go two blocks too far in the other direction and you're in the hood. Mm -hmm. And wherever your listeners are in the country listening to this, I'm sure they can visualize that line in their own community. And so we simply started buying property just on the wrong side of that line, because you can buy that property for literally pennies on the dollar. Now, if you redevelop that and you put decent quality product, now assuming that line is arbitrary, it's movable, it's not going to be a municipal boundary or a freeway or a school district or something like that. It's an arbitrary boundary. If you move that boundary, now it's on the other side of your property. And when you go to get an appraisal, where are the comps? There are no comps in the hood for a brand new apartment building. The only comps are a block away in the good neighborhood. So you may not get a hundred cents on the dollar on your appraisal, but you're probably going to get 95. And if the value proposition to prospective tenants is, okay, it's just on the wrong side of the line. 
and the rents aren't 1800 a month, they're only 1600 a month. Are you willing to live a block away to save 200 a month? A lot of people are. Yeah. So that was the value proposition. And we simply found that to be a very scalable, a very scalable strategy. And in fact, when the more of it you do, the better it gets. Because if you do only one building, nobody cares, nobody notices, you do five or 10, and the marketplace takes notice and says, oh, I get it, the line has moved. So you, you create your own value by doing more. And you may not, if your listeners are listening to this and saying, well, I don't have the resources to do five or 10 buildings at once. Okay, bring a few friends along. Um, yeah, very, very good. I mean, it makes a lot of sounds, you know, it, you're moving that line, right. As you continue to develop, if you're the one development's probably going to, you know, help spur that. But if you do a couple others, I'm sure a couple other people are going to start to take notice, potentially put some other, you know, commercial development in, which really then really helps spur as well and just continues to push that over. So now all of a sudden you're building that, you know, you were renting for 1600 bucks. Now you're able to rent for 1800 bucks a year or so later. And, uh, and, and you're on the right side of the line. Now the line is three blocks away from you. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, we've experienced that. We, we ended up buying some properties that were a little, you know, a little bit too deep into the hood. I'm saying a couple of blocks in, they weren't right on the line. And it took a little while for that line to move for, for the market to catch up, but it did. And in fact, when we did our original pro formas on that project, we were assuming we were going to get rents on the completed product of about 1200 a month. And by the time we got the project done, we, the, the line had moved sufficiently because not just because of what we'd done, but also what some other developers had done. We were getting 1650 a month for a two bedroom. Wow. That makes a huge difference in the value of your building. Yeah. That's a little bit of an NOI growth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You gotta love that. Um, so you know, this uh, development always intrigues me. I haven't done uh, really any of it, but there's, um, there, there's definitely some risk factors. You know, what are, what are some of the risk factors that you have to consider when we're looking at development? And, and I guess on the same token, what are some of the reward factors that make it worth it? The answer to that question is always context dependent, but the risk factors are pretty universal. I mean, the first is entitlement. Are you going to be allowed to build what you want to build in that location? Mm-hmm. We've taken the approach. We started out looking for variances and we were able actually to create significant value by getting variances on the entitlements. But the problem with that is that the timeframes are long and the outcome is uncertain. So at the end of the day, you know, if the, if the benefit is great enough, we'll take one run at the zoning board of appeal and see if we can get something pushed through, but we're not going to take two. Hmm. And increasingly we justify a project based on what we can build by right. Meaning what does the zoning permit? If your height restriction is 38 feet, that's what you get. We're not planning on 39, we're only planning on 38 because that's what's allowed and you fit within that envelope. And if we can justify the product or the project on that basis, fantastic. If we get better than that, that's a bonus, but we have to justify the project based on what's buildable by right. And that's kind of a little bit more conservative approach. So that's, that's number one is, you know, what are you going to be allowed to do? The second risk is what can happen in terms of construction costs. By the time you conceive between the time you conceive of the project and the time you put a shovel in the ground, you could have an event like a hurricane that all of a sudden, you know, material costs spike because there's a shortage of drywall or the shortage of softwood lumber or whatever. Yeah. Uh, those types of things do happen. Now, eventually over time, prices do normalize, but you can have those short-term spikes in, in material cost. Yeah. There's always a risk that you calculated things wrong. Now, for the most part, we've been pretty good with that. Um, but if you get that wrong, there's very little it's going to save you. <laughs> if you if you didn't analyze it right from the beginning, that's going to that's going to be a problem if your assumptions were wrong. Yeah, if you would have analyzed that building you were talking about earlier at 1650 a month and instead it rented for 1200 a month. Exactly. Um, exactly. Now, now we're not talking such a happy story. Yeah, now you're upside down. Well, so in fact, 
So let's actually, well, let's do a little mini case study here. So uh, I'll, I'll give you the actual property address. It's 2220 West Master Street in Philadelphia. Today, there's a 13-unit building on that property. Now, when we acquired it, it was not a 13-unit building. In fact, it was five townhouses that had been assembled together to form a church, and we bought it from a church. Partway into the process, we said, all right, we're going to build 10 um, 10 apartments, so five duplex townhouses, up and down townhouses for 10 units on that property. They were gorgeous. I wish we had built them. And partway through the process, the city of Philadelphia came and said, by the way, we're going to be doing a claim of eminent domain on a vast amount of real estate comprising 1,344 properties uh, in order to redevelop this portion of North Philly. And those properties were on the list. In fact, it wasn't just five properties. There were a couple of properties behind it. So it was, it was actually seven properties. And we said at that point, well, we really can't responsibly move forward with the development because we don't know if the city's going to take them from us and on what time frame. Yeah. So imagine you bought these properties and even a property with a derelict structure is worth more than vacant land. So if we demolished those buildings, we would have gotten less in our claim of em- in the eminent domain claim than if we had left the derelict structures on there. So we had to wait for that entire process to complete. Wow. And we finally got our check for the two properties out of seven that the city took from us uh, almost four years into the process. And wow. by that time, our construction cost was no longer yeah. $88 or $92 a square foot. It was like $115. Wow. And the project no longer penciled. So we said, what do we do now? So we had investors' money. We were paying, you know, uh, holding costs for that entire time period. Yep. And we were starting to, to obviously get worried. So what we did is, and I can't take credit for it, our architect found, I'll call it a loophole. It's a regulation as part of the zoning code that said that if you have the ability to put a green roof, then you get a different density calculation. Hmm. So instead of being allowed to do 10 units on that property, we theoretically could do 13 and change. So that meant 13. And we completely threw out construction-ready drawings for a 10-unit and redesigned a monolithic 13-unit building uh, on that site, which has now been built and it's now fully leased up at 1650 per two-bedroom apartment. And... That was a bit, that was a rescue. It was absolutely a rescue. Now, the original margin, the original yield that we were expecting between the appraised value and the total cost would have met our metrics if we had managed to build that 10 unit, would have given us about a 30% lift between our, our all in cost and the appraised value. And then when the, the cost of construction went up, Basically, we were going to build it for 100 cents on the dollar, which made no sense. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, you're sitting there going, well, when we're all done, we're break even at best. Exactly, exactly. So you go through all this work, and maybe you've traded 100 cents for a dollar. (laughs) So with the 13-unit building, we we thought it was going to be a little bit tight. We thought it would give us, you know, 23% margin uh, between the appraised value and the all-in cost. And between the time that we conceived of even the 13 unit building and got it built. There were delays there as well. Surprise, surprise. Uh, We were getting much higher rents and we ended up, you know, now as we run the retrospective on that project, getting 30, a 39% lift above cost Hmm. on that particular project. So it's a success story, but uh, it was not a straight path from A to B far from it. And, and, these types of things happen. Yeah, well, for sure. And how, how did you keep your investors in check during that time? And, you know, cause obviously they're going, Hey, you know, what's going on? I gave you our money and yep. you're, now you're just sitting on it. Obviously we know there's stuff going on, but like we want some results here. What's going on. So the way that we structured things, first of all, uh, we structured many of the investments as uh, convertible notes. Um, mm. So they start out looking as like a debt instrument, sure. um, pre-construction, and they would convert into an equity position 
uh, on stabilization. Got it. So we were paying interest on those notes for that entire time period. Now, as part of the project, we built an interest reserve into the budget. Now we exhausted that budget yeah. <laughs> eventually, of course, <laughs> but uh, so we ended up having to feed the project. We ended up having to recapitalize the project uh, only once actually. Uh, so we did recapitalize the project and uh, uh, of course the, the 13 unit building was much more expensive to build than, than the 10 unit. Uh, so we had to go through, you know, re, re underwriting the entire thing. Yeah. But in the end, we didn't need that much equity. We only needed, I'm going to go out and just do this from memory here. I'm going to say we needed maybe 350 grand in equity when the yeah. project wasn't, wasn't that much. And, you know, our total cost on that building for 13 units, that's land, hard costs, soft costs, everything all in was, I'm going to say it was 2 million and 45,000 and it appraised at 2.9. Nice. Nice. When it was finished. Yeah, those numbers work. Hey, I want to interrupt uh, real quick and just say, if you're looking for some help, if you are interested in multifamily investing and you want to dig deeper, now's a great time to connect with me and talk about what that would look like, how I can help you get to the next level. And I know there's a lot going on right now. So it's kind of confusing. Should I jump in? Should, what should I do? Well, I can tell you this from experience. Now is the time to learn. And now is the time to really understand how to take that next step because there will be opportunity. Opportunity probably isn't going to happen for a little bit here, but the opportunity is going to be coming or potentially uh, coming, depending, of course, on how things shake out. Now is the time to be learning. So when that does come in six months, in 12 months, when that comes, you are ready to take action. You're ready to take the next steps and you're ready to actually take advantage of what could come down the pipeline. Uh, so now is a great time. I'd love to help you. I'd love to help you get there uh, if you're looking for that next step. So reach out and go to coachwithdex.com, coachwithdex.com and, uh, and just do a discovery call to see if it's a right fit for you. The other couple things I want to mention, uh, we got the North Star Real Estate Conference. That's been put on hold, but it's still coming. We're going to be doing it in the fall now of 2020, and we'd love to have you there. Love to have you. Love to be able to shake your hand uh, or give you an elbow bump, whatever is the, the in thing at that time. And uh, I think it's going to be a fantastic information. We've got a bunch of great speakers that are still planning on coming. So I'd love to have you at the North Star Real Estate Conference in Minneapolis. You can go on to nreconference.com. You can click uh, and get your tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Uh, the last thing, again, I just want to say I really appreciate you listening to this show, and I hope you're getting a lot from it. I would love to hear from you on what you want out of this show. If there's anything that we're doing that we could do better, if there's any way we can serve you in a better way, I'd really love to know that, to be able to take some time and help cater this show better to my audience. So you can uh, definitely give us a note, uh, Pillars of Wealth Creation. You can give us a note. Uh, you can um, write us on Facebook. We've got our Pillars of Wealth uh, Facebook page. You can connect with me personally on Facebook. Uh, I'm just Todd Dexheimer. Um, so you can, I don't think there's too many of me. Uh, so you can connect with me and just let us know what we can do to help better serve you. If you've got guest suggestions, if you've got uh, questions that you'd like us to ask, uh, our, our hump day hustle. So love to really make sure this show is about you and not just about us, of course. I really appreciate you listening and, and being a, a loyal listener and uh, subscribing and helping us build our audience. Let's get back to the show. You wrote a book called yes. uh, Magnetic Capital, How to Raise All the Money You Need with for Any Worthy Venture. Uh, tell us about that book a little bit and maybe dig into a couple of the, the, the key points, maybe one or two sure. things I really think my listeners could gain a lot of value from. I learned how to raise capital in the tech industry. Yeah. And when I made the transition from tech into real estate, I discovered by relearning the process, I discovered uh, 
in retrospect, oh my gosh, it's almost exactly the same. There's a few minor differences, but it was almost exactly the same. And when there were, when it was easy to raise money, there were a certain set of ingredients that just sort of naturally fell into place. And when one or more of those were missing, it became extraordinarily difficult. Hmm. When I looked at what was written in the marketplace uh, around raising capital, a lot of the books out there were pretty academic, not written from the perspective of a practitioner who's in the trenches doing this day in, day out. So I did see a, a gap in the marketplace, and I wrote the book from the perspective of a practitioner. You know, some people say, um, practice what they practice, what I preach. And I'd say, no, it's the opposite. Um, preach what you practice. So the, the book is written from the perspective of the practice. And the book's been out now about three years. I think I'm going to do a second edition. I've learned, even in the last couple of years, learned some new things and I'm probably going to add one or two chapters. Uh, but the core of the book is based on five principles. And when every single one of these principles are met, raising money is relatively easy. So I'll go through those uh, pretty quick, and then I'll share with you one more that I think will make it into the next edition of the book. The first is you need, okay, so you need five things. You need relationship. You need trust. You need a track record. You need a compelling opportunity, and you need alignment between the goals for the money and the goals for the project. So we'll go through those five in a little bit more detail. So number one, relationship. A lot of people will go to a networking event, hand out as many business cards, and collect as many business cards as possible, and that's a very utilitarian thing to do. It's kind of like using people. And if you approach relationships by looking at people as dollar signs on their forehead, uh, you're probably not going to be successful. It's got to start with genuine relationship. Right. You get different things from different relationships. You might get advice. You might get a friendship. You might get introductions. You might get uh, credibility. You might get access to capital. Uh, all these different things. But if you approach every relationship hoping that someone's going to invest with you, it's not going to work. Number two is trust. And this is not just, am I dealing with an honest person? First, you've got to have alignment of intention. That alignment, if you're not aiming in the same direction, it's going to be very difficult to establish the trust. But it's a psychological contract that has a lot of layers to it. It's questions like, can I trust you to put together a good team? Can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to execute the plan? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? and on and on and on. And if any of those elements are missing, it starts to erode the trust. Yeah. And then there's a third element, which I call results or track record, which is an element of trust. Show me what you've done in the past. Show me that you know how to be successful. Uh, and if you don't have that track record, you might be saying, well, how can I raise money with no track record? It's a circular argument. I'm stuck. Because I, if I can't get any money, I can't develop a track record. Well, that could be. But if it is, then you're th probably thinking about it the wrong way. Yeah. Business is a team sport, like you talk about frequently on your podcast. It's a team sport. And if you don't have that experience based personally, go align yourself with someone who does. Many of the projects we're building right now are of a size where, you know, a lender would look at me, Victor, say, Victor, you don't have the track record building multi-hundred unit apartment complexes. And, and they would be right. I've done a ton of smaller buildings and I've done some medium-sized projects, but I haven't built a 300-unit complex on my own. I don't have that in my, in my uh, resume, but... My partner, Bob, has built 10,000. So it, it never even comes up in conversation. The, the fact that I don't have that in my personal resume isn't an issue because we have that elsewhere in the team. You've got that alignment. Exactly, exactly. So if you don't have that experience yourself, go find someone with that experience. Go align yourself with them. Maybe work for them for a period of time, maybe six months a year. It doesn't have to be a decade so that you can legitimately 
earn some of that experience. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So many people want to do it all on their own. And that's, you know, that's one way to do it, but you're not going to grow. You're not going to be doing a 300 unit apartment complex if you're just trying to do it on your own. And, you know, it's going to take, it would have taken you a decade maybe to get to a three, 400 unit apartment complex, but instead you can do it in days by doing it the way you've positioned yourself. Correct. Correct. Number four, you've got to have a compelling opportunity. And this is where most people start. They say, I've got a deal, got a deal. It's all about the deal. And it's almost never about the deal. So obviously you've got to find out what is attractive to your potential investor uh, because, you know, one person's definition of beauty is not, you know, the next person is this image on the magazine cover beautiful. Well, maybe. For one person, their definition of beauty might be medical office buildings at an 8% cap rate. For someone else, it might be uh, industrial space at $40 a square foot. I don't know. It, it, uh, everyone's definition of beauty is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. And once you find that, then you get to the last item, which is the mechanics of the deal. And specifically, I call this alignment. And this is, a, this is about a dozen items where you've got to have that perfect fit between the goals for the money and the goals for the project. And these are things like, what's the size of the investment? What's the term of the investment? How long is the money going to be tied up for? What's the rate of return? What's the risk? What's the security? What's the control structure? What's the tax consequence? And on and on. And if you don't have a perfect match in all of those, it's going to be very difficult to uh, to make a, a successful investment. Yeah. So, what's the story, kind of? Well, it's more than just the story. It's what is what are the is this going to fit like a glove? Yeah. Or is there going to be some element that's forced? You know, some people go into into investments saying, "Well, I want uh, depreciation because I, I I've got other uh, income sources that I want to offset." So I want access, say, for example, the bonus depreciation or something like that. That's one of the things that they're looking for. So it it just depends. You've got to find out what your investors are looking for or design uh, an offering that is going to be attractive enough to a group of investors that are part of your ecosystem that uh, you're going to be successful in raising the money. So how do you know what they're looking for? How do you know? Talk to them. Talk to them. So now you the have to have real conversations with people. You have to have real conversations with people. And here's the thing: when you're starting out, a lot of people will talk with unsophisticated investors yeah. who are not very clear on what their objectives are. Yeah. Well, what, what, what's your goal? Uh, you want to make money? Okay, here's a dollar. Yeah. Um, you know. So, the more sophisticated investors are much more clear on what fits and what doesn't. Yeah. And while it may be easier to sell someone who's unsophisticated, it's not necessarily, it just means that you don't know that you don't fit. Mm-hmm. I would rather work with sophisticated investors. Typically with a sophisticated investor, I will get a very fast no if it's not a fit. And I would rather have that fast no than a drawn out, well, maybe, you know, five, six months of due diligence because it can, it can translate into that as well. Yep. Yep. And a, a maybe, or a, yeah, I think I'm in or I'm in even. And then all of a sudden last minute they pull the plug. Correct. Correct. And that's the worst, right? Absolutely. Um, for somebody who's wanting to figure, okay, like how do I go about this finding people with money? What's been maybe your top success um, formula for, are you going to networking events, real estate networking events and meetups? Are you going to, you know, business networking and meetups? Are you podcast? Obviously you've got your podcast. So like, what's your biggest source? Where, where do you th- feel people should be going? Depends on what you're trying to do. Hmm. If you're trying to raise the money for a single family home or something like that, that's relatively easy. Yeah. That can be done you know, in the trenches, yeah. meeting a few people here and there, uh, that, that's not that difficult. If you're looking to assemble a more significant amount of capital, it's a different process. Yeah. 
you've got to be careful around what the rules say around solicitation. So, you know, everything you have to do has to be compliant with securities regulations. Definitely get yourself educated on, on that topic. I'm not a securities attorney and I'm not going to, uh, you know, provide advice on that, on, on this podcast, but definitely tell, tell, you know, have your listeners find a securities attorney who can help get them educated, read as much as they can on the topic. And there are some offerings that do permit advertising. There are some that don't. If relationship is key, which I would suggest it is, then focus on the relationship building. Everything else that you do, whether it's going to networking events, you know, I run a real estate investment group here in Ottawa, Canada with about 400 members. I regularly have members from the group approach me to invest. I'm not out there soliciting. I'm not out there with a, uh, you know, with a, with a banner or an advertisement about any particular project. Uh, They approach me. And so the work that I do as part of the leadership of this real estate investment group is simply positioning. It's, you know, by being at the front of the room more often than the folks that are seated in the audience uh, all eyes are on you. So it's a, it's a form of marketing. The podcast, same thing. I get people approach me as a res- direct result of the podcast offering to invest. That doesn't mean it's necessarily a good fit, but, but it's still a source of re- relationships. And oftentimes, even, um, even guests on the show turn, eventually over time translate into relationships that can be uh, mutually beneficial. So it's all these different things. And, you know, even a podcast, I mean, you're producing a podcast. My show is daily, seven days a week, which as you can imagine is a fairly significant undertaking. And, uh, but it's, but it's doing well, you know, low, uh, growing listenership, uh, very loyal listenership, uh, strong engagement from the listeners with questions and lots of interaction. So I love that aspect of it. And uh, so that's become certainly become a labor of love and uh, really enjoy putting out the show every day. And it's also turned out to be a good source of uh, interest in, in our projects. Yeah. So there's uh, really, there's no one size fits all. It's all about, no. all about getting out there, um, you know, building meaningful relationships, not just, as you said earlier, being the guy that can put out the most amount of business cards and shake the most amount of hands. It's about building right. meaningful relationships. Uh, with people, which I, I agree with a hundred percent. All right. So we're kind of running out of time, but I, I got a couple more questions I want to ask before we wrap up. Uh, sure. First question is what's a favorite book uh, that you can recommend to our listeners? There's so many. I'm going to suggest this is an older book, but it's a book that I believe will change your life. And it's written, uh, most of your listeners have probably heard of Stephen Covey. He wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This particular book is written by his son, Stephen M. R. Covey. It's not the same guy, it's his son. And the book is called The Speed of Trust. And in that book, he unpacks the psychological contract of trust. And there's a clue in the title, which is that when that trust exists, decisions happen quickly. Hmm. And when the trust isn't there, that's when you have the conversation, well, I don't know, we're going to need a few more weeks of due diligence, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, for sure. So that's definitely one book that I would say uh, for your listeners would, would, will change their life in every dimension. I'm not just talking about uh, real estate or raising capital, it'll, it'll even change your life in personal relationships. Once you understand, you get attuned to the clues of when mistrust is there, what that looks like. And you say, oh, we have a trust issue here. How do I fix that? Cool. Awesome. Sounds like a good book. Definitely we'll have to pick it up. Um, last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? Hmm. So, uh, certainly new development. Um, uh, uh, number one, new development. Uh, number two, try not to sell assets, hold on to them as long as possible. I'm, I'm, I'm a buy and hold guy or build and hold guy because the wealth gets created over time. And in particular, 
when you develop a new building, you get at least up stabilized, you do an interim exit in the form of a refinance where you return all the capital to your investors. You get into permanent financing. That's uh, you know, good quality permanent financing. Now you may, you've got no cash tied up in the building. It's generating positive cash flow for you each and every month. You now have infinite return. So if you were to sell it, what are you going to buy to replace it? That's going to be better than infinite return. Yeah. Nothing. Right. And that's a taxable event. So hang on to it. Don't sell it. Yeah. Uh, So that's number two. Uh, What would be number three? Leveraging relationships. Leveraging relationships. A lot of people are out there looking for deals. And I can tell you uh, with absolute integrity that I don't go hunting for deals ever. They all come to me, every single one of them. So when you are positioned as someone who can add value to projects, projects will come to you. That's, uh, that right there is extremely good advice. Uh, that's something I've been focusing on uh, quite a bit lately is leveraging relationships and trying to add value. And something I've seen exactly as you said, deals are starting to come to me versus me hunting for the deals. And I still do hunt for deals, but I mean, it seems like the best deals that I'm seeing are the deals that are being brought to me, not necessarily the deals that I've hunted out. Correct. And, you know, the other thing that happens, you can go looking for a deal. You can go trolling on looking to Google for answers or looking to the MLS for answers, but there's rarely anything out there with a flashing red light on it saying I'm a deal. And if yeah. there is, there's going to be 20 bidders for it. And at the end of that process, it's not a deal anymore. Yeah. So you can find deals or you can create them out of thin air. So when you man- manufacture a deal out of an idea, out of a concept, there's no one competing for that deal in your head. So you're alone in the marketplace. You know, yeah. Any B or C class apartment complex of 200 units and above that comes on the market. It's an auction, right? There's going to be 10, 20 bidders on it. Always. 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 Right. So if you want to stay out of that auction environment and because auction fever does take over and people always end up paying too much, the winning bidder ends up paying too much unless they know something that the others don't. You want to be, you want to be alone when you look at all the major developers, I look at the the land basis, the cost, the major developers have paid for the land that they're building on. Nobody else can compete. They, they saw that they've land banked, you know, at two, $3 a square foot. When everyone else in the marketplace today is paying, you know, several hundred dollars a square foot. It's not that they're getting paid for, you know, five bucks a gallon cheaper than everybody else. And yes, they are doing that. But it's because they got their land basis. Got their land so cheap. Right? For pennies on the dollar. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, awesome. Well, really good stuff. Uh, and actually, I was going to make a comment. I really like that hold on to assets. I can't remember who it was, but it was a long, long time ago uh, when I was first starting this business. It was by an older gentleman. He said, the, uh, I remember asking, you know, what, what's one of the bigger mistakes you've made? And he said, selling assets. He said, every property I have sold, I regret selling. I wish I would have kept it. Yeah. So um, interesting that you say that as well. Um, Awesome. Well, I really, Victor, really appreciate you coming on the show. A lot of good value here. Um, I will link your book on the show notes. And um, how can everybody get in touch with you? Where should we, where should we go? Easiest way is at my website, victorjm.com. That's victorjm.com. And uh, there's access, there's a form. You can get in touch with me directly by email. If they want to email me directly, also victor at victorjm.com. And the Real Estate Espresso podcast is also there on the website seven days a week. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. So check that out too, Real Estate Espresso podcast. Well, Victor, again, appreciate you being on the show. Uh, Thanks a lot. And uh, definitely got a, a lot out of it. Awesome. Thank you, Todd. Great talking to you.
Hey, I want to thank Victor for joining us on the show. A ton of good value and a little bit different. Uh, you know, we don't talk a ton about developments. It was kind of fun to talk to him about that and, and also to hear his money raising principles. And I'm going to go through those again, the five principles, uh, building those relationships, building that trust, that alignment, uh, you know, and, and then that track record, making sure you have a good, strong track record or finding others who can align with you to have that track record and build on the track record. Uh, then obviously providing a compelling opportunity and then be able to provide the mechanics of the deal, the story, to be able to tell that story so they understand what's going on. Your investors know um, what you're actually trying to do. And so really good information from, from Victor and a lot of fun on the episode. Go back, rewind, re-listen, take one thing from this episode and apply it this week to your business and watch the difference that it makes and watch that compound effect and how your business improves week after week as we continue to add more and more uh, principles, more and more success habits to our business, we're going to see that compound effect. Again, thanks to Victor for coming on the show. I appreciate you. I appreciate you listening and, uh, and being a part of it as well. Thank you very much. My name is Todd Dexheimer, and I am signing out. Make every day a Saturday. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. But your rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also, look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out, and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.